0: Hey, Cornerstone. Good to see you guys. Man, glad you're here. We're in the middle of, I, I just think, a really intriguing series about end times. We're uh, taking kind of a flyover of the book of Revelation. Today is going to be super cool. Uh, we're going to talk about Antichrist's meteoric rise Uh in this world, actually establishing in a one world government, we're gonna, we're gonna talk about the wheels coming off and, uh, literally the, the world just kinda loosening the hinges and how that begins to wrap up and then the return of Jesus Christ here to the earth. So it's just some fun stuff for us to cover together today. Now, if you've been here so far, then you've already, uh, kinda walked with us as we've had a discussion about an event that we call the Rapture. Uh, which is a really interesting moment in which Jesus comes, uh, he doesn't come to earth, he only comes as far as the clouds, and then every single person who's here on the earth who is actually a Christian, not that they've been baptized as a baby, not that they went to church an awful lot, not that they prayed, that they've actually made their own personal decision for Jesus Christ. To be a Christian, you have to have come to a point where you said, look, I get it, I get that I've done some things in my life that the Bible would call sin, that I can't fix that in my own strength. I need a Savior who can forgive me for those sins. And you make your own personal decision to step past the cross in faith and to accept Jesus as your Savior. That's a Christian. And the Bible says that every single person who's here in that moment... Uh, when Jesus comes in the rapture, is going to immediately be caught out of this earth. Or you get another way of saying this the whole church. Everybody who's actually part of the just in an instant. And the Bible talks about our bodies being transformed in that instant and you and I going to heaven in that moment. And look, 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 I get it. I get that some of the stuff we're talking about, you go, man, that just, that's just, that's just, there's a little bit funky. I mean, let's just be honest, it's a little bit out there. And especially if you're here today and you go, Lynn, I, I did not even figured this Jesus thing out. And I'm I'm not even sure if I believe the Bible's accurate or true. And so, I mean, you know, for you to start talking about, you know, dragons and locusts, just, I'm just telling you, just as, this is really, really stretching me. And I go, look, I get it. I get it, I get it, I get it. And you don't have to walk out of here today fully convinced or fully understanding or getting it all. You just have to walk out of here today thinking about it. But let me tell you why I can stand in front of you today and speak with confidence. It's because when you go back and examine the first coming of Jesus, when Jesus came here to earth as a child to die on a cross and then to give you and I an opportunity to discover God, there were literally hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament written, some of them hundreds of years before Jesus came, some of them thousands of years before Jesus came. And you ready for this? Of those hundreds of prophecies about the first coming of Jesus, Every single one of them was fulfilled with the coming of Jesus and every single detail in every single one of them was fulfilled perfectly without a single hitch in the coming of Jesus. Which then gives me a confidence as I look into the book of Revelation and guys, I'm with you. I look at it and I go, wow, I don't know. There's a dragon and it's kind of, I I get it. But the confidence I have is, is that God's track record up till now is perfect. And so when that moment comes and when all of a sudden there's that locust thing, I don't know, is it a literal locust? I don't know if it's a real locust or is it something that looks like a locust? I don't know. All I know is this. When that moment comes, the people living in that moment will look at it and go, oh my goodness, that's the locust. That's the thing the book of Revelation said. And it's exactly like the Bible said it was going to be. And it's why you and I can have this conversation about things that have not happened yet and to do it with confidence, even though some of it's a little weird, okay? So here's this moment, it's called the rapture. Uh, It's this moment when Christians are caught up out of this world. The Bible tells us that this is a tipping point moment. Uh, It begins a process. And the very next thing that happens is what you and I call the tribulation. It is seven years... Uh, in which God is, for all accounts and purposes, giving a spanking to this world. It's as if God is saying, look, 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 look. I've tried everything I can try up till now. I, I've tried being kind. I've tried being patient. I've tried giving you little spiritual nudges in your life. Here's the problem. Time is getting ready. Opportunity is getting ready to be over. We're, we're coming to an end date. And you haven't listened yet. And so I'm just pulling out the big guns. I'm doing I'm doing whatever I have to do to get your attention. And apparently, uh, the only thing I can do is bring some discipline right now. It, I've got to bring out the big guns right now. And every one of us in this room who's ever been a parent, you know this moment. You know, you, you've sat with your kid and you said, let me explain to you why you've got to pick up your room. Let me tell you why. Let, let me help you. Let me give you a little incentive. I'll give you three. But, you know, you, you, and finally you go, look... <laughs> I don't I don't know what else to do. I mean, we're talking taking cell phones away or we're talking cutting your Barbie's hair doll off, I you know, whatever that is. So I don't know, but I've got to get your attention. I got to do something to get you on the right track. That is the tribulation. This seven years of literally just spanking is to say to everybody who up until that point has refused to fully, to say, look, I, I just got to do whatever I've got to do because there's not enough time and I can't, I can't let you miss this conversation and so I am, I'm coming, I'm coming with a spanking, hoping that your heart will get softer, hoping you'll change your mind about me before it's too late to change your mind. Here's an interesting thing. Uh, as the Bible unfolds this seven-year period, the book of Revelation goes on, uh, do you realize that the United States isn't mentioned I think this is a big deal because actually, if you think about it, the book of Revelation actually identifies other countries. You know, we talked last week about the fact that it talks about the dragon coming from the east. We're pretty sure that's China. Uh, There's a reference uh, to the country that's the bear coming down from the north toward Israel. We're pretty sure that's Russia. How interesting is it that the scriptures do not mention the United States? Because think about this, how could you even have a conversation about world diplomacy and World, ec- And not mention us. We'd be right in the front of it. We'd either be, hey, you're, you're not being helpful, or hey, you're right, you know, you're the key. Pl-. How could you have a conversation like this and not have the United States be part of the conversation? I think there's two potential answers. And guys, I'm just saying this out loud. This is a guess. I'm just trying to figure out why we wouldn't be in the conversation. So here's my two best guesses. Number one is that somewhere just before the tribulation or immediately after the tribulation starts... There is such a catastrophic economic collapse in our country that you and I are no longer players. That literally we are so devastated economically we're not even invited to the conversation anymore. Uh, We're literally a third world type country at that point. The second uh, potential is this. What if Antichrist actually rises from us? Uh, What if he holds political office in the United States? So that every single reference about his system, about his following, is actually a reference about us because his power comes through us. Either way, I think it's really, really disappointing. Now, if you want to try to find something that maybe, 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 maybe sort of hints about the United States, there's a passage in Revelation chapter 12. Uh, Verse 14, it's a very small passage. It's a very minor passage. Talks about Israel being lifted out on the wings of eagles. Maybe. Maybe. But that still doesn't explain why you and I aren't front and center in this conversation. All right, so let's talk for a few minutes about, hey, uh, how does... Antichrist go from a fairly obscure figure at the beginning of the tribulation the reality is in the first three and a half years he is not world ruler he does not he is one among many rulers and he is able to leverage the events of the tribulation so that by the midpoint he has meteorically risen to world stature and world control how does he do that so grab your Bibles uh, it's revelation chapter 13. If you're unfamiliar, if you just go to the back of your Bible and work to the left, you're going to find this book of Revelation. This is probably the easiest Bible search you will ever do in our church, because it's the last book of the Bible. It's as if the Bible scholar said, hey, you know, that one's really, really kind of scary and weird. Let's make it at the last. So it's Revelation chapter 13, uh, starting in uh, verse 1. Here's what it says. Revelation chapter 13, starting in verse 1, the dragon, now anytime you see the term dragon in uh, Revelation, it's referring to Satan. And it's interesting because during the tribulation period, it's as if God says, hey, some of the things that I've constrained you with, some of the things I've held you back and told you you couldn't do, you got your shot. Do what you want to do, go for what you want to go for. And the Bible literally portrays Satan as being the great puppet master of the tribulation. Everything is him dangling and controlling during this period of time. Uh, He's referred to here as the dragon. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads and with ten crowns on its horns and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast, which the beast is a reference to Antichrist. So you're going to hear Bible scholars back and forth. Antichrist, the beast. Uh, The beast, I saw, resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon, Satan, gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed, and the whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon uh, because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast who can wage war against it? So the first major event that we find here In Revelation chapter 13, and we're not going to read it all, but guys, this is probably one of the most pivotal chapters in the whole, you're going to want to go home and read it. It's fascinating stuff. But the first major event is this, what seems to be mortal wound uh, to Antichrist uh, that somehow then ends up getting healed. Here's an interesting thing. As Satan presents Antichrist, and the reason we call him Antichrist is simply this. He is literally as far different from Jesus as you can possibly be. He is absolutely narcissistic. He is absolutely in it for what he can get out of it. It's all about his personal attainment and his personal glory. He doesn't care about anybody else. He's willing for everybody else to die for him to be happy. Jesus was willing to die for us. And so he is literally the antithesis of everything that Jesus is; hence, the anti-Christ. But here's the interesting thing about it: is that in actuality, as Satan props him on the world, people are going to believe that he is the Messiah. Some are going to think it's Jesus come back, and others are going to think it's Jesus come for the very, very first time. Matter of fact, uh, one of the things that Antichrist probably is going to do now—this—I just want to say this out loud. This is me reading between the lines. But it's obvious when you read the book of Revelation that the temple is back in full function during this period of time. I guess, my best guess is that Antichrist probably somehow negotiates a peace treaty. That he's able to get the Arabs to relinquish the temple mound. He's able to allow the Jews to finally, after thousands of years, rebuild their temple, which brings great alliance with them. I mean, they are absolutely thrilled that he's been able to do this. I also am guessing, okay, am guessing, I, my best guess is, is that he probably has some sort of Jewish lineage. That somewhere in his ancestry, he's got some sort of Jewish, uh, heritage there. Here's why. Because the Jews in the early part of the tribulation believe he's Messiah. And I don't know how you get there if he doesn't have any Jewish background. But they literally believe, here's, here's gonna be, there's, they're gonna say that Jesus character, we told you he wasn't the root, cause this is the real Messiah. This is the Messiah the Bible told us about. And we've been waiting all this time for him. And they're going to accept him. Isn't it interesting that as Satan goes to set him up, that he offers as part of the evidence of Antichrist a false resurrection? Isn't that interesting? Because stop and think about it, guys. What's the most powerful evidence of the authority and the authenticity of Jesus Christ? It's Easter. It's the resurrected Savior and satan trying to mimic that will create a false resurrection as a way of authenticating antichrist as being the messiah the new messiah for the world revelation 13 goes on to tell us that it's during this period of time that he will finally establish a one world government guys i don't know how that happened i don't know how we get there. here's my guess My guess is, as the world goes through all the calamity that is the early part of the tribulation, that this guy seems to be the guy with the best answers. In other words, he starts creating alliances. He says, hey, you know what? If we'll kind of work our economics together, if you'll do trade with me, I'll do trade with you. And as he does this, everybody that goes into alliance with him seems to be economically better off than the rest of the world. And guys, I'm just going to tell you, you want to get people to join you, you want to get people to leave their scruples and their character behind, offer them money. Say, hey, if you come with me, I can help you financially. How many people have you seen get into a con scheme and things that were unethical, they never would have done, but it's in the promise of money. And so my best guess is is that whatever he puts his hand to seems to economically turn out better than what anyone else is doing. And so the world begins to say, well, shh, It only makes sense. I mean, we're over here struggling. We can hardly feed ourselves and you guys are prospering. We're in. And for the first time ever in the history of the world, there is one guy who has absolute control and is actually running the world. Next thing in Revelation chapter 13, it talks about a false prophet and a one world church. So he ends up to say, hey, look, look, here's the deal. You realize one of the things that's caused problems in our world up until now and all this dissension is all these different religious views. So look, 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 look. What, what if we just all agree to agree? What, 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 what if we just coexist together? And so you're, I do I don't care what you believe. It's okay. And if you want to believe in Buddha or if you want to believe, I don't even care as long as we all believe in God and we all believe in being good people. So, and he creates this one world church with a one-world prophet over the top of it. Isn't it interesting that Satan... Remember we said Satan's in charge. Isn't it interesting that Satan would create something religious? Isn't it interesting that Satan would create a church, a one-world church, that's cooperative and collaborative and... You know why he's willing to do that? Because Satan doesn't care if you worship God. Satan doesn't care if you go to church. Satan doesn't care if you believe. As long as you don't believe on Jesus. See, as long as you, as a matter of fact, you can believe on Jesus as long as you don't believe on him as Savior. As long as you think he's just a good example or or a nice person who taught something, then Satan's all okay. He's all in for that. And he's going to say, look, it's okay, if if you want to do this, and if you just say, hey, we all have different roads to God, and we all get to God, in different,' and and you happen to have a Muslim road to God, and you have a Buddhist road to God, and you rub crystals to get to God, who cares? As long as you don't acknowledge Jesus as Savior, Satan's fine. And so he establishes a one-world church, saying, you realize it's it's been this whole Jesus thing and all that, that's been so divisive and so harmful to our world, and let's just all... Worship our own way as long as we're going the same way. The next thing that he does in Revelation chapter 13 is called the abomination of desolation. This is an interesting moment. So in the temple, remember we told you the temple's back fully functional. In the temple... The false prophet, the leader of the one church says, well, you know, you realize who's unified all of us and who's brought us all together collaboratively. It's been Antichrist. It's been this really cool guy. So let's erect an idol. Let's erect a statue to him. And then we can all go to the temple mount and we can give it reverence and we can give it respect or, you know, maybe even worship it. Uh, but we can all do that together because, you know, he's kind of like the prophet. I mean, even the Jews are calling him the Messiah. And so the false prophet has them erect this idol right there in the temple mound. Now, this is an interesting moment because although Israel and the Jews have followed him unapologetically and even declared him Messiah up until now, in this moment, they absolutely turn away. In this moment, they say, we've been hoodwinked, and they turn away from Antichrist. Why is this such a big deal? Why would be putting this image in the temple courtyard be such a big thing to them? Ten Commandments. First commandment, thou shalt not have any other gods beside me. Second commandment, thou shalt not make unto thyself any graven images, any idols. And immediately the Jews go, we've been duped. Because God cannot possibly, cannot possibly, cannot possibly be doing this in the temple. And they turn from Antichrist. The interesting thing is, in this moment, Antichrist becomes as hateful and vindictive toward the Jews as he's been toward the Christians all along. And he begins to kill and persecute them with the same fury that he's been killing and persecuting tribulation saints for the first stretch of the tribulation. Final thing that Revelation talks about in his meteoric rise is the mark of the beast. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago a little bit. But it's interesting. I don't know if you've caught it or not. It's actually the false prophet who comes up with the idea that we all need to have this common mark. It's possible that the mark might even be a symbol of the One World Church. We don't know. And, and is this symbol in ink? I, I, I don't know. You know. Or is it like a fluorescent ink? Like when you go to Disneyland you know, and you can't see it, but you put it under a black light and all of a sudden, you know, a little symbol. I, I don't know could it be could it be a chip that we're in I don't know I simply know this that scripture is absolutely clear when it says that once this decision is made that they're going to have this form of identif- it's going to you know it's going to save you from identity theft and it's going to make transactions safe and it's going to do all these things um, but everybody's going to be required you will not be able to go into a store and buy anything you will not be able to make a transaction you will not be able to get employment If you don't have the mark of the beast, it will be worldwide. The thing I think is intriguing is that the day this passage was written, we did not possess the technology to pull this off. Not unless you just had a physical marker and wrote on someone. Today, today, we could do this instantaneously. You could do it tomorrow. Here's another thing about the mark of the beast. The Bible seems to indicate that getting the mark of the beast, being willing to accept it, is a one-time, forever, never-changing decision. That when somebody during the tribulation says, okay, I'm going to accept the mark of the beast, that they step across a line that says, I will never, never, never be able to recant. I am deciding this for forever. And that even if they thought later, hey, I think better, they can't. Because they've made a once-and-forever decision to get the mark. Now, this is interesting because this is different than right now. If you mean, stop and think about this. If somebody argued with, pushed God out of their life, their entire life, they could, they could, at the 11th hour, they could be in a hospital laying on their deathbed. And in the 11th hour and 59th minute of their life, they could say, I was wrong. I want Jesus in my heart. And right there on their deathbed, they could ask Jesus in their heart, and they would instantly be a Christian. Not so during the tribulation. During the tribulation, if they choose to get the mark, they have sealed their decision. It's a one-time deal. Matter of fact, let me give you a passage. Uh, Grab your Bibles real quick. It's Revelation chapter 14. So it's just a little bit over from where we've been. Uh, This is where we get this idea from. It's Revelation chapter 14, starting in verse 9. Here's what it says. The third angel... "...followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which was been poured out full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever." And there will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. And it appears to be a once and for all final decision to take the mark. So we've talked about we've talked about Antichrist and this meteoric rise to world power and all that's going on with that. And then after that, we seem to have a little bit of pause. We don't know exactly what happens. But our best guess is simply this. We think there's probably a period of some sort of prosperity. There's a period of time when people are going, man, this was the best decision. He's the right guy to lead us. This is all turning out better than we ever thought. And everybody's in until... Until the wheels of this world literally begin to fall off. And that is chronicled in Revelation chapter 16. So grab your Bibles, go over there real quick if you can. Revelation chapter 16. Uh, Here's when the world should know. Ought to be figuring out, boy, we have made the worst mistake ever. It's Revelation chapter 16, uh, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. Uh, then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went out and poured his bowl on the land, and ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped its image. So you get this moment. Suddenly, there's a pandemic. that, that Literally, worldwide, um, everybody who has the mark of the beast breaks out with these boils, these oozing boils that are just tormenting in their pain, and yet Christians, those who have chosen Christ during the tribulation, don't break out in the boils. Why why do you think God would do that? Why would God only give the boils to those who had taken the mark and not give the boils to those who had refused the mark? Here's what I think. I think it's an act of love, actually. I think it's God saying, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. I I just need you to know there's something going on here. This isn't natural. This isn't normal. This is me. And you've chosen the wrong side. Because you see, all my children are safe and healthy and okay right now. And you've chosen the wrong team. Back to the passage. Uh, Verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead person. And every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his blood on the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, O Holy One. You uh, who are and who were. For they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So here's the moment. Remember earlier on, uh, we talked about the fact that one-third of the salt water and one-third of the fresh water turned to blood. And we said, look, is it literally blood? I don't know. I mean, God could do that if he wanted to, right? He did that in Egypt. He could do that if he wanted to. Or is it just that he afflicts the water and whatever that is, it looks red. And so the easiest way to describe it is to say, hey, it was blood like I don't know. All I know is a third of the fresh water and a third of the salt water was affected and and caused huge economic chaos, huge struggle for the world. But think about what just happened now. The Bible says that the vast, 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 vast majority of all water, fresh or salt, is now affected. And everything that's in the ocean, everything that's living inside of the front, dies. Think about how hard it's going to be for someone just to take a drink. Think of the effect of this upon the world. Verse 8. A fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch the people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and to glorify Him. So now God, figuratively and literally, turns up the heat. He says, okay, I'm, I'm just going to make the sun hot and it's going to be really, really harsh. And still, and still, they go, no. I, I, re, I can tell God's behind this. I can tell that that's the only way. And no, I will not bow my knee. I will not repent. I will not acknowledge God. No. I'd rather be a ruler in hell than a servant in heaven. No. And you and I just wonder how stubborn can, how long can you hold out? And you realize that holding out is to your own harm. Wake up. Verse ten. The fifth angel poured out his bull on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness and people gnawed their tongues in agony and they cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent for what they'd done. So now God goes the other side. He goes, okay, so instead of it being too bright and too hot, we're just going to plunge you into just absolute, you won't be able to see your hand in front of you and now you're dealing with the pain of the sores, you're dealing with the thirst that you got going on, you're dealing with the hunger you got going on and the Bible says, and it was hard enough that people are gnawing their tongues in pain And still, I refuse, I refuse, I refuse to repent and acknowledge God. Verse 12 The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs that came up out of the mouths of the dragon, the mouth of the beast, and the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs and they go out from the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and to be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to a place in the Hebrew that is called Armageddon. So you get the moment. See, there was a period of time everybody was going, man, Antichrist, you're so cool. You're amazing. You, you've led us into prosperity and success. And now the wheels are coming off. Now the earth is literally shaking on its axis. And they're going, dude, I, what, I could do better than this. And so now the kings of the world, the rulers, the political figures all say, well, then we're, we're just going to take it for ourselves. We're going to be in charge of us. You, you don't get to make any decisions for us anymore. We're going to make our own. And so now they come to battle. And the battle culminates... Interestingly enough, in an obscure little valley in Israel called Medigo. Uh, I'm getting ready to take a trip over to Israel with a bunch of people from our church. And we're going to go visit the site of Armageddon. This little quiet valley. But yet that's going to be the focal point at which the world comes together to annihilate each other. The Bible says that battle will be so bloody that the blood will fill up the valley to the bit of a horse's mouth. Verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bull into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. And then there came flashes of lightning, rumbling peals of thunder and severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on the earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts and and the and the citizens of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her a cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. So think about this earthquake. So now there are tsunamis coming out of this earthquake that literally wash over every known island. Mountains begin to shake and crumble so that mountains now become knoll hills. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell on people. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrifying. And again, I refuse, I refuse, I refuse, I will not bow the knee. I will not acknowledge God. And in the midst of this, Jesus' second coming. Scripture tells us that in the midst of that battle of Armageddon, in the midst of the hailstorm and the earthquake that we just described, Jesus comes back in what we call the second coming. Here's why it's the second coming. When Jesus came in the first came coming, he came physically to earth, was born a child, showed us the way to God. In his second coming, unlike the rapture, he will physically come to earth, this time as judge, To take his throne. In some ways. The second coming. Is the rapture in reverse. So think about this. When the rapture happened. Remember Christians. Left. We went up to heaven. And people who didn't know God. Who hadn't decided on God. So if you want to call them unsaved. Or undecided. However you want to call that. They stayed during the rapture. In the second coming, Jesus will remove all those who have refused through the whole time, or the unsaved, the unrepentant. He'll actually judge them. And the ones that will be left are the Christians who lived through the tribulation. It's kind of the rapture in reverse. That signals really the final chapter, the second coming of Christ. What do we do with this? What, 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 rather than this just being head knowledge and how, how, how do you and I glean something from the conversation today? And here, just a couple things I think you and I ought to think about. One, we've kind of said together, you don't want anyone you love to face that. You don't. You don't want to stand in heaven someday and say, man, there's my neighbor, there's my cousin, and, I was just too embarrassed. I just never found the right moment to inject Jesus in the conversation and now look what they're living through. You and I don't ever want to have that. So I'm just going to nudge you today to say, when you're having Thanksgiving dinner, when you have that cup of coffee with your coworker, find a way. Find a way to be just a little bit louder about Jesus. Find a way to share a little bit about why you have faith. And I get, I get, it. I get that they may laugh. I get, I get that they may think you're a wha- I get it. But you and I don't want anybody that we really care about to ever face this, and we don't know how close we are, and not to have had the opportunity to know our Jesus. Second thing. How amazing is it to you that a world would follow a guy like Antichrist? That they would let a guy like that? Run the whole show. A moment in which his character and what he's doing and it doesn't even matter because they're being benefited economically. Here's why I think that's a big deal, guys. You and I are getting ready to face an election. And in that election, we're going to elect a new president. And I'm just going to say to you, I don't, I don't think you and I need to have as our first priority who has the best economic plan? I don't think that the first pass ought to be who's got the right answer for immigration. Now, I'm not saying those aren't important, I'm just saying I don't think that ought to be the thing that just. you know what I think ought to decide? What is the depth of that person's character and how close are their values to being biblical values? And after you figure that out, and I don't care what party they're part of, I don't care what is the depth of their character and how close are their values to being biblical values, then we can talk economics. And then we can talk immigration after we figure that out. Last one. It's kind of interesting because the Bible doesn't tell us when this happens, but it gives us one small hint. Here's what it says. It says when those last days come, They'll come because the world will have gone so far into darkness that it's all that's left to do. Matter of fact, it describes it this way. It says, it will be as it was in the days of Noah and in the days of Lot. And then will the end come. But what if, what if the church really, really became the church? What if, what if you and I said, you know what? We are this world's best hope. So I'm going to back this thing financially. I'm going to back this thing with my time. I'm going to serve like I've never served before. I'm going to learn my Bible like I've never learned my Bible before so that I have a shot, so the church has a shot to change this world for Jesus. And how cool would this be? You know what I think would be the best discussion ever in heaven? Dude, we were thinking about coming back like 2016, but that crazy church won so many people to Jesus. Jesus. They're too focused on God. We've got to wait for the world to get bad again. How great would that conversation be if the church would simply be the church? And we would do what God has called us to do in this world. And that's to be salt and light. Let's bow our heads. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, we uh, we come to this moment and we've just got to say that there's a part of our heart that's a little bit sad that that the last conversation you're going to have with this world is a spanking. That things are going to get so dark and people are going to turn their backs so wildly against you that the last resort is to put this world over your knee and say, do I have your attention now? Will you reconsider your position on Jesus? God, we'd love to be the church. We'd we'd love to turn this thing around and to be such a powerful influence in our generation and to have this world suddenly be so consumed and so focused on Jesus Christ that you couldn't possibly come back because things weren't dark enough yet. And so, God, we're just going to say, would you help us be the church? And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.